0: everybody. This is Aaron Good, and you're listening to the American Exception Podcast. This episode is part five of our Destiny Betrayed series on the JFK assassination. More specifically, it is the first of two
1: episodes dealing with President Kennedy's Vietnam policies. When President John F. Kennedy took office in 1961, most Americans had never heard of Vietnam. Kennedy himself had not only heard of Vietnam, He'd visited the country in 1951 as a congressman during the course of a seven-week trip through Asia. On this trip, Kennedy met with Edmund Gullion, an American diplomat in Saigon. At the time, the Vietnamese were fighting an anti-colonial war against their French occupiers. Edmund Gullion explained to the young congressman Kennedy that the French were in a hopeless situation. According to Robert Kennedy... This trip had a major impact on JFK's thinking. Upon Kennedy's return to the U.S., he went on the radio and categorically dismissed the survival prospects of the French Empire in Indochina. Kennedy said that it was a serious mistake for the U.S. to ally itself with, quote, the desperate effort of a French regime to hang on to the remnants of empire, end quote, without demanding political reforms, namely independence for the people of Southeast Asia. This was the only way to defeat communism, not through sheer military force. In 1953, as a U.S. senator, JFK reiterated his view that the insurgency in Indochina could not be put down unless France promised to grant full independence after the war. He even introduced an amendment making U.S. aid to France contingent on a guarantee to decolonize. But Kennedy was an outlier and his amendment was soundly defeated. In 1954, the year of the decisive French defeat at DNB and Pew, JFK took an even more forceful stance on the issue. In a Senate speech, Kennedy said, "...to pour money, material, and men into the jungles of Indochina without at least a remote prospect of victory would be dangerously futile. No amount of American military assistance in Indochina can conquer an enemy which is everywhere." and at the same time, nowhere. A so-called enemy of the people, which has the sympathy and covert support of the people. End quote. Again, JFK was in the minority. The very next day, President Eisenhower gave his famous domino theory speech. As president, JFK tried to walk a fine line between avoiding disastrous war and not appearing soft on communism, a requirement in U.S. politics at the time. An overwhelming amount of evidence has accumulated, showing that President Kennedy was withdrawing from Vietnam. But it was also clear that he was doing so in a deceptive way, as to not endanger his reelection chances by, quote, losing Indochina and igniting another Red Scare. We're honored to have two illustrious scholars with us to talk about John Kennedy and Vietnam. Professor John Newman is a retired U.S. intelligence officer. His 1992 book, JFK and Vietnam, shattered for all time the orthodoxy that LBJ's Vietnam War was a continuation of Kennedy's policies. Professor Newman was an advisor for Oliver Stone's 1991 film, JFK. He also made a cameo appearance during the film's unforgettable scenes with the mysterious Colonel X, played by Donald Sutherland. In our Vietnam discussion today... Aaron and Professor Newman are joined by James Galbraith, the Lloyd M. Benson Jr. Chair in Government and Business Relations and Professor of Government at the University of Texas. Professor Galbraith is the author of numerous books, including The Predator State. His masterful 2003 Boston Review article, Exit Strategy, synthesized and expanded on the suppressed history of Kennedy's Vietnam withdrawal plans. James Galbraith is also the son of famed economist and diplomat John Kenneth Galbraith, a man who was Kennedy's former economics tutor years before he worked to help the president try to extricate the U.S. from Vietnam. Here we are now with John Newman and James Galbraith in conversation with our host, Aaron Good.
0: Since the history of the Vietnam War is complex, and I can't expect everyone here to be steeped in the historiography of John Kennedy in Vietnam, I'm going to try to have a short explanation here on the broad view of Kennedy's Vietnam policies. And this draws from John Newman's book, JFK in Vietnam, and he breaks up the Kennedy presidency as it pertains to Vietnam into five phases. The first phase is January to March 1961. And for Kennedy at this time, Vietnam is overshadowed by the Bay of Pigs debacle and Laos, where it seems like there might be a communist takeover of the government or an all-out civil war. So during this time period, um, the U.S. is trying to uh, support Ngo Dinh in South Vietnam, which is a puppet state and wholly a creation of the United States after the United States backed out of the Geneva Conventions, which followed the Vietnamese victory over the French. um, In 1954, the Geneva Convention stipulated that there should be elections in 1956, but the U.S.-installed puppet, Ngo Dinh Diem, scuttled those elections, and it was later found that if the elections had gone forward, that Ho Chi Minh would have won by 80% or something to that effect. So they have this dictator US puppet in South Vietnam, which is a totally made up country, essentially. Now for Kennedy, the plan for the counterinsurgency to support Diem was supposedly going to be predicated on some reforms that Diem would make uh, to improve the political uh, situation in Vietnam. But eventually this gets dropped and No Diem is more or less given a free hand. And the Viet Cong capture uh, part of the Ho Chi Chi Minh Trail territory in Laos, which means it's possible to supply uh, the communists, nationalists in South Vietnam uh, that way. So JFK's options are to either withdraw or to stage a coup or to say a Hail Mary and hope for the best. And that's what he actually goes for. It was a hopeless situation in Vietnam. The U.S. Uh, had no understanding of Vietnamese society. They didn't understand the, the beefs of the insurgency, you know, why there were so many people who were against the U.S.-backed regime. And No Diem's policies were pretty terrible. Um, JFK also discovered during this time that his advisors really wanted to intervene in Southeast Asia, and he did not. So he, he refused to send ground troops into Laos Uh, despite a lot of pressure from the Joint Chiefs uh, to do so, because he believed they could work out a different solution, and they did. They worked out a neutral solution. Okay, phase two is early May of 1961 and all throughout 1961, and it's bookended by two decisions by Kennedy, uh, NSAM 52 and NSAM 111. So at this time, you have the success of the communist insurgency in South Vietnam, and the U.S. is committed to stopping this and that there's a lot of disagreement in DC over what to do about this in Sam 52 commits the U S to opposing communist domination of South Vietnam. And it sends 400 special forces advisors. Now the bigger one is in Sam one and that is issued on November 22nd, 1961. And during this time period, the military brass are making every kind of argument to Kennedy, in order to get him to send in ground troops, but he rules out U.S. intervention. Every possible argument for sending in ground troops was mustered by the military, and Kennedy refused. They said the battlefield was desperate, the situation was desperate. The top advisors were all unanimous that the fate of South Vietnam hung in the balance, and vital U.S. interests in the region and the world were at stake. And Kennedy still refused to do this. It's the major Vietnam decision of JFK's presidency. This unleashed a flood of U.S. advisors, helicopters, and military equipment. So he refused to send in ground troops, but he did send in a number of advisors, a large number of advisors, who probably were more than doing more than advising. were likely were involved in fighting to some extent, uh, and a lot of helicopters and military equipment, but. This was issued without really resolving the major issues, so Sam 111 did not really deal with these fundamental questions of why were the Viet Cong winning, uh, why were the peasants helping the, the, the insurgents, and why was Diem not changing his policies to become more popular among the people, and also when and how could the U.S. possibly leave down the road. JFK resisted pressure for war here, but he was not ready to accept defeat and the political consequences of doing so. Phase three is the first half of 1962, and there's dramatic growth in uh, the Viet Cong at this time. Um, There's a suspicious sudden reversal in the military reporting on the war effort towards optimism. And it's strangely sudden because the new program hadn't really been in effect. So to be able to enter, to be able to influence anything. And it followed after a long uh, span of very dire reporting coming from the military. So this, this new optimism from the military obscured the reality of how things were going and uh, denial really of uh, the extent to which U.S. administration had committed the U.S. to South Vietnam. And this, it was nonsense, the kind of reporting that they were getting. Um, And it was carried out at the higher levels, you know, people with security classifications. It eliminated about half of the real hardcore uh, insurgent forces from the official order of battle. So it grossly understated the the troop strength of the enemy. And uh, this was, you know, something that happens throughout the Vietnam War. Westmoreland does it again in 68 and 69. So because of JFK's refusal to send troops, all the planning and manipulation of the military people sort of proceeded from there. Uh, The success of the Viet Cong during this period meant that in SAM 111, the plan to send in advisors was really stillborn. And that's going to leave JFK with two options, send in troops or withdraw. So in April of 1962, uh, JFK wants to entertain a neutralist solution, and he uh, consults John Kenneth Galbraith about this, and John Kenneth Galbraith may have actually tried to plant this seed in Kennedy's head. And the plan was to um, have the U.S. work out a neutral solution just like they did in Laos, and you can declare victory and leave. Okay, phase four is summer of 1962 to the uh, winter or early part of 1963. And this phase begins as the false optimism is still prevailing from the military reporting. And because of the Cuban Missile Crisis, you have the Vietnam situation put on the back burner, okay, especially when this ramps up in October. Um, this, the idea of the success and the reports they were getting was an illusion, always depended on more men, planes, and helicopters. So by spring of 1963, deep involvement and unfolding failure threatened Kennedy uh, in The Vietnam situation threatened Kennedy's re-election chances in 1964. So the South Vietnamese army that the U.S. was propping up was too small and was really more useful to Diem to protect his political power, not to actually go out and fight the communists. Phase five is spring of 1963 up to the assassination. During the summer of 1963, you have the Buddhist crisis, and this is the time that JFK reconciles himself to pulling out of Vietnam. Guilt or whatever else, you know, political calculations made him conclude that only his re-election could get the U.S. out of Vietnam. This is a a real serious question to debate. Was he correct about that? Could he have withdrawn before the election if he was planning to withdraw and still been re-elected? So, he, JFK decided that that was not the case, and he didn't expect to get assassinated. And so he puts in this plan that leaves people twisting in the wind until his re-election uh, as, uh, in Vietnam. His pull-out plan had four components. He could only get re-elected and then pull out. Okay, it was only going to be possible to pull out if he was re-elected, or there would be a new red scare, like after China uh, fell to the communists from the U.S. perspective. Um, You know, you had this red scare and all this paranoia and uh, fear mongering by, you know, leads to McCarthyism and so on, blaming, blaming people like Dean Acheson, George Marshall for, quote, losing China. Okay, so that was part of it that it had to be after the reelection. Also, that he would start to bring some advisors out during the 1964 election season, partly to appease uh, liberals who wanted less U.S. involvement in Vietnam. But to appease the right wing, he was going to link this 1,000-man withdrawal, that was just the beginning of a bigger withdrawal, to the success story that he was being presented by the military brass. So he's kind of in a desperate situation, and he wants to be able to say, oh, yeah, we're pulling these people out, but this is due to these great reports that I'm getting about how well everything is going, even though he is aware that these reports are not accurate. So this is, this, is a, this is a difficult situation. Now, because of the political and military problems in South Vietnam, Kennedy decides that the way that he can do this um, strategically is to have his top military advisors make the case about the 1,000 man withdrawal being linked to the success on the battlefield. So this is really a, a emblematic of his kind of desperation at this point. He knows that it's not really accurate, but he wants to be able to, with, to begin this withdrawal process. And so he has McNamara and Taylor write this report and then, make, and then later make this case for the withdrawal uh, so that he can be more or less hiding behind the Pentagon and its top two officials. McNamara is the Secretary of Defense and Max Taylor is the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. On November 20th, you have the nodin Diem assassination. And JFK may have allowed, or he, he allowed planning for the coup for different reasons, you know, because there were lots of problems with Diem and it might make more sense to have somebody else in there. But he was angered by some of the moves that precipitated the coup. And he was also out of town when the coup cable was sent by Roger Hillsman in the State Department and overworld arch establishment guy, Avril Harriman. They sent this coup that allowed this to unfold, and it seems like people like Harriman and Kennedy's Republican ambassador to Vietnam, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., were really working against uh, the Kennedy administration's plans for Vietnam. Okay, now the, the in October. Just to go back a little bit, October of 1963 is when Kennedy issues NSAM 263, which does call for a withdrawal to be completed in 1965, but to be begun immediately based on the Taylor McNamara report. And additionally, in October, you have Max Taylor issuing a memorandum to the Joint Chiefs of Staff saying all planning will be geared towards the withdrawal. That's also in early October. So there's still some unanswered questions about this. Uh, That John Newman raises. One of them is, what was this new study that Kennedy was in the midst of when he died? So he told people that he was working on a new study about how he got into Vietnam. Uh, You know, it'd be interesting to know if that's eventually what became the Pentagon Papers, Um, but it's still not really known exactly what he was referring to. Another question, would he have accelerated the pullout and faced the consequences in an election year because since things were going so badly in Vietnam, would he have actually abandoned his more cautious plan, including his attempts to appease the right wing by accelerating his his plans? You know. And the last question that Newman asks is why did the last press conference no longer include winning as a U.S. objective in Vietnam? So the other, the last thing I want to go over here in order to make this hopefully uh, more informative and less confusing is a a few names. And I'm only going to mention three that you may know already, but if you don't, then this is helpful. One of them is Lyman Lemnitzer. We talk about him a bit. Um, He was the joint, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff appointed under Leiden Eisenhower's term. And he was a very hawkish right-wing fellow He wanted Kennedy to invade Cuba during the Bay of Pigs. He approved Operation Northwoods, presented it to RFK on March 13th, 1962. Three days later, JFK tells him that there's no chance the U.S. would take action. So he says, we're not going to stage terrorist attacks and blame them on Cuba just to allow us to invade. Lyman Lemnitzer is a big advocate of preemptive attack during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Later, it's revealed that there were already nukes many years later. It's revealed that there were already nukes on Cuba. So if Lyman Lemnitzer had been listened to, it would have started World War III. But after the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy, unhappy with Lemnitzer, which he has been for a long time, he tries to demote him and get rid of him by sending him to Europe. He's appointed as commander of the U.S. European Command, which also means he's the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which means he has also uh, the ability to oversee Gladio. He presides over the Gladio structure of this clandestine terror network, essentially. So that's not good. Maxwell Taylor is JFK's main advisor on the military and national security during the 1960 campaign. He had retired from the military at that point. Later, he's called back into duty by Kennedy, and he heads the Bay of Pigs Task force, which is an autopsy or post mortem on what went wrong with the Bay of Pigs. In October of 1962, he's the person who replaces Lemnitzer as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And it is John Newman's contention that Maxwell Taylor may have been one of the key people to uh, betray uh, Kennedy and was perhaps involved in uh, some elements of the assassination. A last person is General Paul Harkins, who was promoted to general as commander of Military Assistance Command Vietnam, abbreviated as MACV, and that was the entity that was giving all of those falsely optimistic reports on Vietnam, and he was a very hawkish uh, person who would have been wanting to undermine any plans to withdraw from Vietnam. So with all that out of the way, we're going to be talking to our guest today. It's great to be here today with Professor John Newman and Professor James Galbraith, talking about JFK and Vietnam. And uh, the two of you have probably done as much uh, as, as any two people to highlight the history that was suppressed for so long about John Kennedy and Vietnam. So it's really great to have you here together. And uh, you two have collaborated in the past in different ways um, I want to start off with a question for Professor Newman. Um, the book JFK in Vietnam grew out of your dissertation. Um, what led you to look into this area? Or to put it another way, why was this still so unexplored in the late 80s when you uh, presumably started to work on this? Or was, did you even decide to work on this earlier? How did this happen?
2: Well, I'll tell you the, the story of when I did. But the reason why it wasn't, Looked at is the the documentary record, not just of the, his withdrawal plan, but basically most everything, wasn't released until the early 90s. And so I was lucky. I was just fishing the book at the time. And there it was, you know, but uh, so that's all there was, was the assumption that, uh, you know, LBJ did what what the Kennedy was going to do. And everybody believed that and that it was years, decades. And so nobody wrote too much about it. It wasn't very. Interesting. And then all of a sudden, when the documents came out and then later on, as, as Jamie knows, well, that the, the, we've got recordings even, you know, from from the Oval Office that uh, substantiate the documentary record. So anyway, I'll tell you, I'll answer the first part of the question now that, of uh, uh, how I decided to look at, at at this area. in And it ended up being my dissertation and um, JFK in Vietnam. So it's really a story about my two mentors. Um First at George Washington University, uh, Dr. Richard Thornton, um, and he became my uh, in, in my master's and in, in, in PhD became my advisor, all all through that too. Uh, and I'll get back to him in a second. But anyway, I had done my master's uh, on uh, Mao Zedong, and, and I was in you know Chinese studies and uh, East Asian studies. But uh, eventually, I got. Uh, became an officer, commissioned from the ranks, and ended up um, pretty quickly uh, after working on National Intelligence Estimates as the um, military assistant, the director of the National Security Agency, General William Oldham. And uh, wherever he went, I went, not not one piece of paper, went into his office before it didn't go over my desk. So we had a a friendly relationship. He was a world-renowned criminologist, Uh, unlike a lot of these military guys that come in. He knew a lot about history and and political science and those things. But anyway, so one day we were uh, he was going down to a conference in um, uh, for naval intelligence down in the uh, the Carolinas. And we were on an army plane, just the two of us. And he was reading his new paper, as he always does. And he put it down and and he said, John, what are you going to do your dissertation on? So I knew it was my quarterly counseling, (laughs) minute or two. And I said, I was going to do it on the uh, succession to Mao Zedong. And he was almost angry. He said, oh, come on, that's too easy for you. You know, why don't you uh, do something uh, more difficult, you know, show some metal, you know, step outside of your safety box. And so I was taken aback at that for a while. And then I, I thought and then I said, OK, let me ask you a question. What if I told you that JFK was pulling out of Vietnam at the time he was killed? And he thought for a while, he said, well, if you could uh, show some evidence of that. He said, that would be a great dissertation and went back to his newspaper. So when we got back that night, I called um, Dick Thornton and I told him, I said, I want to change my dissertation. He said, to what? And I said, JFK, Vietnam. And his first words were, I thought you'd never ask. And so that's how it happened. That's simple. That's why I, I did it. And um, and I had Odom's support and Dick's support all the way through. Um, but sometimes the, the universe just is funny. And, and uh, I, if it hadn't been for that plane ride that day, I don't know if we'd be here talking to each other right now.
0: What led you to even have the confidence that there was the – that you were going to be able to substantiate
2: what you well, were saying? Well, I – look – I had three degrees in East Asian studies as it was. So I knew a lot about Vietnam uh, until I changed my uh, major to Chinese studies. I had a minor in Southeast Asians, uh, something or other. And so I was aware of Peter Scott. Now he had a small segment in volume five of the Gravel edition, the Pentagon Papers, but he hadn't, didn't have any documents that they hadn't been released. But, um, you know, I was aware of the possibility that that was and I was interested in it and always had been interested in it. So i had done a little research, but not that much. But it was enough that whether, you know, I, I, uh, I was trying to take the easy way out Odin was right. You know, I had comps to do and all these things to get through. And, um, but when he challenged me like that, I got my back up. <laughs> so I said, okay. And then when he said that would be a great dissertation uh, because what it means is he was no dummy. It overturns an orthodoxy and breaks new ground both the, both things we're supposed to be trying to do at the dissertation level so right funny story but that's how it happened
0: yeah in theory I, I guess it's supposed to overturn an orthodoxy I, I from my experience in graduate school that's not the bar that most um, most know, doctoral <laughs> candidates try to clear <clears throat> uh, but yeah that's uh, so
2: but JFK in Vietnam did that
0: yeah, it absolutely did that. I mean, still to the to the point that even more mainstream historians have uh, have come along and back that up.
2: Way after Jamie did, let me tell you that Jamie was on to this a long time ago.
0: Well, that's the other thing that makes it interesting to me is that people like Arthur Schlesinger and and Max Taylor had also said something to that effect. Um, that, that Kennedy was pulling out, and people like Wayne Morse, right, um, had had. It was known that they were telling that. I know a guy around here. His name was Sam Snipes, and he passed away recently. But he did work in the Roosevelt administration, and he told me that Morse personally told him that about w- what what he had said before that JFK told him that he was getting a, the U.S. out of Vietnam. So yeah,
2: people r- remain deeply divided that were in the administration even afterwards. Uh, I went on a little tour through some of the Southern states, not long after my book was published and had a debate on the uh, TV channel, uh, public channel there in in Georgia. Um, And uh, so Dean Rusk was my opponent. And um, we got to the point about uh, continuity or no continuity between uh, JFK and LBJ. He said, you know what, Um, Kennedy, that's not right. Kennedy never told me anything about that. And I said, you know that's probably not too good for you.
0: Well, McGeorge Bundy was in the same boat. I mean, it took McGeorge Bundy till the end of his life till he he sort of acknowledges himself that Kennedy made an end run around him and that that was sort of how Kennedy. Yeah, went. but
2: not with me. Uh, I got with him right away because I found the Honolulu uh, records and and his. Uh, before Kennedy g- got killed, actually, uh, because of what the agenda was at Hon- Honolulu. There had been an assassination, of course, at Diem. That's what they were there. It was a second death conference to take a second look at Posse. But um, anyway, uh, NSAM 273, the first version, was written by George the- Bundy the day before, on his trip back from uh, Honolulu. And then, of course, it's changed after the assassination. But uh, so, um, And I was certain it was him. And so I called him up and uh, he said, I don't have to remember that. And I said, yeah, well, I've got your name right here on, <laughs> you know, on the memo. And he said, you mind sending me that? And I said, sure. And I did. And he called me back the next day, said, that's my that's my typewriter. I remember now. But he didn't talk about it in a book. But so he had had two slash marks through the operative uh, paragraph, which was how we intensify the war to, to, to fix things is only to increase South Vietnamese forces. And so that was wiped out with two hash marks, opening the thing up to uh, OP plan 34A essentially and, and direct American intervention. That was the difference, the main difference between NSAM 2, 3, version 1 and 2. And George Bundy knew about it from the right, right. from the get go.
0: I've, I've seen the actual the document that you're talking about. I, I put it on um, the my PowerPoints when I used to teach this, this part of history. Um, Okay. uh, Professor Galbraith, if I could take you back to that same time period, you know, middle to late 80s, um, what was your thinking on Kennedy in Vietnam at the time? Was it something that you actually thought much about or that you had discussed with your father, Kennedy's ambassador to India, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith? I mean, was this something that you'd thought about much?
3: Well, let me, first of all, before I say anything at all, I want to express my pleasure for being here and my admiration for John Newman. Uh, and it's a, a, a bit of irony that uh, John, uh, as, as he's just described, came to the subject through an academic channel as a topic of his of his PhD dissertation. And this was not my case at all. Uh, they uh, uh, I. I it's, uh, well, Vietnam was a matter that I grew up with. We were obviously aware uh, as children that uh, my father was a close advisor and confident of Kennedy on this and other matters, uh, and that he was uh, in some ways the earliest and most vociferous opponent of engagement, military engagement in Vietnam. Uh And through my adolescence, uh, the anti-war movement was a big part of my life, high school and college. I I worked in the McCarthy campaign, and I was the student organizer for the McGovern campaign in 1971. Uh, So these things were, uh, uh, you know, but when the war ended, so did my engagement with the topic. I I went on to other things, and from the mid-70s through the, uh, until a day in 1992, I don't think I spent, uh, any significant amount of time reflecting on Vietnam or or uh, engaging with the history until um, until one day I was in a, a book stop in austin uh, and um, uh, my, uh, my 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 wife uh, uh, pointed out a, a a stack of books that was the red cover uh, and uh, um, I picked it up and looked on the back and noticed that to my rather Bewilderment that it had been endorsed by both uh, William Colby and Oliver Stone. And I thought, what the devil is going on here? Uh, So I bought the book, and it was John Newman's uh, JFK in Vietnam. Uh, and uh, at that time I was teaching again uh, I had been teaching for a number of years at the LBj school and I was teaching a class on uh, the interpretation of historical documents uh, so I, I put a section on on Kennedy and Vietnam on the syllabus after having done some additional reading uh, you know, so how do you interpret this particular episode given the conflicting evidence and it happened uh, that the this that John's book was coming up on on a date that I remember well because it was the 15th of October, which happened to be uh, in nineteen ninety two, my father's uh, or ninety three actually, that my father's eighty fifth birthday, uh, and uh, uh, I flew off to a. Uh, to an event, uh, I think it was in New York, but it might have been in Boston, um, for it. John, however, on that day, was in Austin uh, talking at a conference at the LBJ Library, uh, and my students, uh, by a dent of the library's efficient surveillance of what we were up to, were invited to uh, to the conference. They had discovered that uh, John's book could not be purchased. Uh, uh, that it wasn't out of print, but the distributors were not selling it. It was a very peculiar situation, so they they approached him at the conference and said, "Major Newman, what's what's the story with your book?" And he said, "How do you know about that?" And they explained, and he said, "Well, it's been suppressed." Uh, and uh, they brought me back uh, that information and a piece of paper with John's phone number on it. Uh, and at that point, uh, we got in touch. And a few weeks later, a month or two later, I was in Washington for some other purpose and went up to see him. So I was drawn into this uh, by uh, by by the uh, you know, by having discovered John's book and then having had the serendipity uh, through my students. Of, uh, of, of of being able to encounter him, uh, and uh, the rest of the story there is in is in uh, the the very uh belated but important second edition of jfk in vietnam is uh but it's uh you know this something where where in some sense uh john's work and and something that was it was deep in uh, among other things my family life uh converged because uh it was uh it was very much um uh, my father had been uh, kennedy's undergraduate Uh, economics tutor at Winthrop House at Harvard in the middle 1930s uh, and had a relationship with him that went all the way through uh, JFK's career as a congressman, as a senator, as presidential candidate. And then uh, Kennedy sent him to Vietnam in in 1961 as ambassador, uh, where he maintained a very close a relationship with policy on Vietnam because the Indians were important as a channel. They were members of the International Control Commission, and they were a channel for potential uh, negotiated settlement of the conflict. Uh, and uh, so they, was, this was a case where I come out of an environment where we knew uh, Kennedy's instincts on these matters extremely well. Uh, but, uh, of course, the details of the decision uh, which was the contested territory that really where where the book JFK in Vietnam uh, uh, makes its uh, you know its most important impact. This was not known to me. Uh, I don't think it was known to my father either. I mean, at that time, he was out of government. Uh, by October of '63, he'd returned from India in July, uh, and uh, so while Kennedy's. Views and attitude were known, and that my father was w- had proposed a negotiated settlement and a phased withdrawal, and that, that this had been part of the planning in 1962. I we knew that, but uh, but that there was a decision in '63 in October. Uh, that was not that was something that that emerged from the evidence that uh, came came to light in the in the early 1990s.
2: In case your viewers who see your podcast um, don't read the new edition of JFK in Vietnam, I'll tell you right now that if it hadn't been for the intervention of the Galbraith family, and Jamie in particular, we wouldn't be sitting here talking to each other. Okay? They went to the Time had Time Warner Inc. And he'd know about the suppression. When he found out, he got a hold of the uh, president or w- whatever it was, I think the president of, of Warner Books, and he admitted right away what it was, that it was suppressed. And so he had to call me up, finally didn't return my calls the whole time. And, and he said, what do you want to do? Do you want to sue? or? And I said, I'll tell you what, give me my rights back and I'll look the other way.
3: Yeah, well, that happened. This was a bit of another bit of serendipity in the conversation that John and I had at his house uh, in uh, late nineteen ninety three. Was that uh, the the whole imbroglio over the over the book was with Warner Books, and it happened. I had a, a friend, a colleague from the McGovern campaign, uh, who had uh, was working uh, in the hierarchy high in the hierarchy at Time Warner. So I called him. He said, "Sounds like a scandal. Send me the book." So I did uh and uh, that that then i think led to an, uh, a, an inquiry which uh, softened uh, the position that the that the publisher took on um, on 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 John's rights and opened the way eventually for to make the book available but uh, you know the what happened to the book was uh, was a travesty because there were uh, 30,000 32,000 copies printed uh it was uh, it was reviewed on the front page of the New York Times book review uh, by Arthur Schlesinger in highly favorable terms uh, and uh, it was obvious that Schlesinger was exceedingly interested in seeing John's uh, historical uh, uh, narrative uh, propagated because it corresponded to what Arthur knew uh, were Kennedy's intentions, and uh, and then the book suddenly couldn't be sold, and it was eventually remaindered. You could get copies, uh, but of course the economic and the uh, and the narrative and the uh, effect on Johns. Uh, You know, visibility in the world were 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 dramatic. This was a this was a very uh, unpleasant and uh, reprehensible thing uh, to have happened. Uh, And I was certainly uh, you know happy to have been in a position to be of some assistance, just by again by pure chain of 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 uh, of lucky lucky connections. Did they ever determine? I mean, was it ever just explained
0: who in the corporate. Hierarchy decided we must stop. I mean, it's strange because the it's the same parent company as Oliver's book, as Oliver's as Oliver Stone's JFK.
2: So it it was the combined effect of the film and the book, both under Warner, right, uh, that touched off such a food fight in the media. I have boxes of you know getting attacked from both sides. You asked a question about that, but. Um, so not only did Warner Books suppress the book, but I was called in to the general counsel of the National Security Agency, where I still was uh, working for as major, and told them my book was classified. And I had taken it in to Q Group, which was a staff-level unit at the NSA that actually handled pre-publication review. And I had walked in and gave them my manuscript. And they said, oh, no, we, it's not for you. You should send this to the Army because you work for them. It's their responsibility to do it. And I said, I have done that. And they passed it. But I thought you'd want to know just, just in case. And that really saved the day in the end. But they wouldn't stop. And then, um, and then they wouldn't, they wouldn't re- respond either. I, I asked her, I said, what's classified? And she said, well, I don't know. And I said, when will you know? And she said, "I don't know. I don't know." So it was, it was obviously such a just you know, uh, somebody had asked NSA because I was working there and I would be afraid of losing my pension. I was only a year and a half away, losing my clearances and all that. And so Stone sent um, what's his name, uh, uh, political uh, activist um, uh, who had his own company uh, in in Washington. Very famous guy Mankowitz Mankowitz Frankowitz yeah Mankowitz he sent Mankowitz out this babysit me We met three times uh, outside of NSA in, in uh, a motel there and uh, and he just said, you know diff you got to do this." And so I did. And then the the, uh, the chicken match came at the uh, premiere of the film. And the the press junket that was going to take place afterwards, my Stone gave us me two first class tickets in unlimited uh, uh, in a big place to entertain people, so I could take my wife, and she was so scared she wouldn't go. So anyway, to to get to the point here, uh, the next morning when the uh, junket was going to start, it was only twelve. of was the only um, person besides the actors and actresses, and Zach Squire those guys that actually got to be at the press junket and one person sits at a table there's 12 chairs and then you're there for 20 minutes and then the, the press moves around and around and around and does that all morning and so at four o'clock that morning saturday morning i'll never forget at four o'clock in the morning my phone rings in my in my hotel room and i you know i'm asleep. i said oh and they said is this is, is this major newman I said, yes, it is. Who's this? He said, uh, this is a national security Agency calling me at seven o'clock their time in the morning. Usually nobody's working in there at seven o'clock in the morning, but they knew what was going to happen that day. He said, this is the national security Agency. Your, your, your book is cleared. You're good to go. Goodbye. <laughs> and I sat there stunned for a while and um, he said, have a good day. Goodbye. And then I did. I had a good day. So they lost, too. But uh, the, as as Jamie said, the book, the suppression of the book, in term, uh, had, had done its damage, you know, in terms of my reputation or whatever. But that was another the other half, and all of that's in the, the revised edition. So that whole story.
0: Yeah, the I, I the book deals. You go into great detail throughout the book on um, you know the chronologically tracing Kennedy in Vietnam. At, and then you have a final chapter towards the end where you sort of summarize these things. Where I think it's you really s- state it all very clearly, and uh, it's a really valuable resource. I'd really recommend that people get the book. Um, I have this, the Kindle version of the second edition and the hardcover of the original, um, but it's it's very valuable. And uh, there's the the subtitle of it is Deception, Intrigue, and the Struggle for Power, and even as you recount the story of the publication and then the suppression and and so on, the amount of deception that just, uh, you know, uh, is present through the entire, not not through Kennedy himself, Kennedy's national security state is lying in, in so many ways about the estimates they give to him and so on. And they're trying to manipulate him. Kennedy is, is realizing that he has to dissemble to the press and, and, you know, deceive them in different ways, and and sort of the public to a degree about his actual plans in Vietnam, and, and then all of this deception in terms of you're getting your book, uh, you know, them them withholding it, holding it back for strange reasons, and then the, with Time Warner, I mean, it just it, you wandered into this, you you dealt with a, t- a topic involving enormous amounts of uh, bureaucratic chicanery and deception, and then your book also becomes. Uh, you know, subject to, to like a, a different sort of version of this kind of deception. And uh, I mean, the thing that I guess it hammers home the point that the people that are out there that that poo poo uh, conspiracy, conspiratorial, you know, maneuverings within government and, and so on, uh, there's it seems like it's often common practice for uh, for deception to, to prevail in, in, the, in the conduct of a uh, policies, especially things of such import like this. I mean, um, did, were you shocked by, were you surprised by this, by the way that your book was, the, all the drama with your book, or did you sort of expect it?
2: Of course, of course. Yeah, there were uh, three other books that were put out to counter the effect of my book and the film um, and to make the case uh, for a continuity and I, I won't go into all them, but there, uh, one was Norman Mailer's book, and then one was the the guy who talked about the, the so the alleged withdrawal, and then there was a, a third one that was a former uh, guy up in Baltimore I knew personally who um, was on the side that argued Kennedy was killed by a conspiracy, and had changed his mind. So you had three different. It was a trifecta you know to to uh reflect the uh and and try and prevent uh a large number of people either um you know in academia or just generally in the media you know uh the power of the, that film and the book at the same time so it didn't stop for a long time and um and it did uh Upset me. And um, and so um, that's one of the reasons I didn't do anything for a long time. And I'm glad I didn't. Because by the time we got to more recent, we had so much more stuff. Stuff that Jamie had uh, un- uh, dug up and, and, and other things. And uh, our numbers were growing by that time. So when the second edition did hit, it hit like a missile. And the it, the sales were very, very good. Very good. And by that time, I, I had my own, I was, a, it was a, uh, an independent author. So I got 60% of the royalties instead of four.
3: Well, this, is, <laughs> this is good news. I, I, I hadn't heard whether, how uh, the second edition had done well. So I'm glad, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that, okay. actually. Yeah. Still
0: selling. So, yeah. um, Professor Galbraith,
3: you, um, I guess your
0: first published article on this, was it, was it Exit Strategy in 2003 in, in Boston Review? Um, and you, you, in that book or in that article, you summarize Newman's work and and Howard Jones, um, and you talk about Peter Dale Scott's early work a bit in that, um, you'd previously written about Kennedy and the nuclear issue, which was another sort of suppressed aspect of the Kennedy administration and about the plan to preemptively attack the Soviet Union that sort of dovetailed with the date of the assassination in terms of like when they thought they could actually pull something like this off, which may have added to the the hysteria in official circles around the time of the Kennedy assassination. What it, as far as getting into the Vietnam angle, what led you to write that article in two thousand and
3: three? Well, it was very much an outgrowth of this uh, of, uh, of the events we've just been discussing, um, and it was uh, uh, initially a. a a, a seminar paper, actually, uh, that's presented in the government department, and all I did uh, was to go uh, through the um, materials that were available in the library uh, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, other collections, but basically uh, histories and memoirs uh, to uh, try to ascertain what the um, you know the division of opinion was in the historical community uh, and there was a, a you know basically a, a large consensus that held that there was a that either glossed over the period, uh, immediately from October through December of 63, from the decision through the assassination and beyond, uh, I, I, or, or stated more or less explicitly that there had been no uh, no significant developments in policy at that time, which is, considering that this was the moment of the assassination of Diem in Saigon and so forth, is, uh, you know, is somewhat peculiar. But in any event, that was a small group, uh, and you could find references uh, in Arthur Schlesinger's work uh, and in a few other places, Places in Peter Dale Scott's work, uh, to the to the to the position that was most clearly articulated by by, by John and in, uh, in, in JFK in Vietnam, uh, and so what what I did was to uh, basically provide a review of the situation uh, and uh, a précis of the evidence uh, that supported and in my view very decisively John's position. Uh, they uh, uh, this by that time included. Uh, and I believe this was the case by the time that article appeared. The tapes uh, of the of the White House meetings, which are very uh, clear cut, uh, I mean, uh you have you have you uh, have you have the voice of McNamara stating explicitly, "We need to get to get out of Vietnam, and this is a way of doing it." Uh, uh, and this that seems to me very plainly choreographed between McNamara and Kennedy. Kennedy had charged McNamara to develop the. Uh, uh uh they uh, uh you know, to, to 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 basically uh put the chiefs through the exercise of developing a a, a withdrawal timetable uh, and uh, and you have um uh you also had the uh, at that point uh, uh one had also i believe the uh, Uh, The the decision memorandum, including an important memorandum that uh, uh, was issued on the uh, 4th of October uh, by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Maxwell Taylor, uh, that uh, was very explicit. To the other chief, saying this is the decision, and this is the way uh, the planning will do. All planning from this point will develop uh, uh, to uh, effect the complete withdrawal of uh, of all special assistance forces by the end of 1965. And that's in black and white. Uh, that was that document was not released for 30 years, uh, but uh, it. it uh, uh, it came to my attention uh, uh, when 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 a parcel of, of, of Pentagon documents were released, so all of that then sort of buttressed the case uh, that John had made already, uh, and um, uh, it seemed to be worth. Uh, presenting it as a as an article, which I did, and there followed also an article, very similar article and in, in slightly different tone that appeared in Salon. That uh, I did at the request of uh, of Sidney Blumenthal, actually, who was a who was at that point an, an editor at Salon. Right, he
0: was a Clinton guy, right? I
3: think he's Max. Is he's Max? Uh, I mean, Sidney has a long and and, and storied career, which is uh, most recently uh, three so far three excellent volumes on Abraham Lincoln. But, yes, he had worked in the Clinton White House.
0: And his son, Max Blumenthal, has done uh, interesting work at the Gray Zone. His
3: son is also doing some very cutting-edge material work these days. So the the
0: October 4th or early October Maxwell Taylor uh, statement, that wasn't in JFK in Vietnam because it wasn't out yet. But that really buttresses John's, uh, John, Professor Newman's thesis that you know Kennedy was – pulling out and that it wasn't contingent upon some sort of success in, in Vietnam. And that, that would seem to have really been an effective counter to the critics that said, oh, well, Kennedy was making all these statements and and he always talked about winning. He never said withdrawal without, without victory. So therefore, you know, you can't.
2: Yeah. Let me weigh in on that. So that document is interesting because it's not good for Taylor. It might seem like it is. But um, I've gone all the way back now, just recently, uh, when Jamie came through to spend a a day with me on his way to uh, New England. I was just about at the point where I did six hours, two nights in a row, three hours in a row, starting way back in 1939 and 40, finding all the people that survived through all of that and ended up in the Kennedy administration controlling everything and then tracking the history of those people and, and Max Taylor not a good guy. He was a Trojan horse inside the gates. He's the only guy in the world who liked Bobby Kennedy at that time. (laughs) And the only reason he liked Bobby Kennedy at that time is because that was the way he got power with JFK beyond just uh, recapping the mistakes of the Bay of Pigs. And so he was handed the Vietnam account, the military account, before the end of that year. Then he made the mistake after being sent to Vietnam to come back with a Recommendation for sending combat troops, which Kennedy told him not to do under a cover of a flood relief task force. So he got fired from that position, but not fired completely. That's what caused Kennedy to bring everybody in and read the right act to him and, and say, OK, you either get with my policy or get out. And I want somebody to tell me who's going to put my Vietnam policy in play. And, you know, <laughs> McNamara puts up his hand and says, myself and Lem, Oh. That's only because Lemanns, was chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he didn't Lenders didn't have any uh, intention at all of, of doing anything uh, but getting into Vietnam. But so he lost control of the Vietnam issue, and Mac, McNamara takes it over. But then there's the question of the new command structure, MACV, and we have to have a general take over, and so. Taylor puts his own protege in there. Harkins is his protege. And so all of a sudden, he's got Harkins, and then comes the time for Lemitzer uh, to leave his post. It was it was due to change jobs. And he ends up, first of all, before making a decision on what to do, he goes to Taylor and says, would you consider going to the SAC your Supreme Al Commander, your position? He said, nah, my wife and I, we travel too much. We want to stay here. So then JFK offers Taylor the job as the head of the CIA. He says, no, I don't want to do that either. So it puts Kennedy in the position, actually, of sending Lemitzer to a place he never should have some bad mistake. Sack Ure has all, Operation Gladio and some other things were going on over there that Kennedy didn't know about. But uh, the point is now, due to this sequence of events, Taylor is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he's got the guy, the commander on the ground, so he's got complete control now. And so what happens is after NSAM two sixty three, Taylor plays like he's part of the team, but he's not. He's working with Krulak and Birkenau, a big Air Force guy, chief of operations or deputy chief of operations at the time, on our plan thirty four A already behind McNamara's back. That's for you know, full intervention, American intervention. And at the same time, they are gutting the the, 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 the early withdrawal plan. Kennedy put down real strict guidelines. I don't, I want actual um, units pulled out. Well, they changed all that and they didn't tell McNamara. So, so in just six weeks, two things happen that McNamara doesn't know and Kennedy doesn't know. Taylor and the rest of those guys are gutting, his withdrawal plan while standing up uh, plan 34A for a uh, an American intervention in Vietnam. That looks terrible. How do they know they're going to be able to do that unless you can complete that sentence? And the optimistic interlude ends on 20 November, two days before the assassination. Taylor has, I've, I already suspected him all the way back in the first edition. But by the time I got into the second edition, and then since then, it gets bad. It it just gets worse. And the only other person I know who really didn't like and always thought that Taylor was a snake was Peter Scott. He used to talk about it. Twenty
3: years ago, there, just on the on the subject of the documents, it's it's, it's very clear when you examine them. Taylor's own memorandum uh, is a very short cover note to the other chiefs, and then there are a couple of pages which come clearly from some other text. And uh, the, uh, I, I believe the reasonable inference is that the the pages which s- state. Uh, explicitly, what Kennedy's plans are are in fact the original text of the of the of the so-called McNamara Taylor report, uh, which was obviously not written by Taylor himself, uh, but uh, confected uh, uh, at the Pentagon while they were in Saigon, um, and. Uh, this is uh, this is this is there's a there's a typographic kind of distinction between these two documents, and uh, it would appear to reflect uh, the fact that, that that Taylor himself was was definitely not uh, the. Uh, the policy author of the pages that he that he then transmitted uh, in uh, on the fourth of October, he simply says, "This is the president's decision. Uh, have a look, essentially, and you'll read the next two pages, and it's it's very clear cut. Timetables will be established. All planning, the comprehensive plan will be revised. Uh, uh, there, it, it, it uh, the doc, the, the, those two pages leave leave uh, very little, in fact, no wiggle room at all."
2: Well, the thoughts, you know, from uh, being so close to Bobby with the review of the Bay of Pigs and then advising combat troops for Vietnam in, in the uh, December of 61. Uh, and then his actions as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff are all thoughts that you connect in one direction. And uh, so I have a, I have a chapter in volume four on uh, Taylor, as the title of which is um, "Trojan Horse Inside the Gates." That's where my research has taken me to in all these years.
0: Yeah, it's alarming, also because um, he's. I know what you're going to say. He, uh, doesn't didn't Robert Kennedy name one of his children after Max? Yes, and is
2: Maxwell Taylor. Kennedy, and then his, that guy named his son Maxwell Taylor, first middle name. So that's that's tough
0: uh, to think. Right, and it kind of could shed some light onto some aspects of the of the of the assassination, like the handling of the autopsy by military people, and RFK was like in the building, as if I remember correctly during that. And uh, I mean, of course you wouldn't expect him to oversee his brother's autopsy, but I, you know, his, some of his paralysis about dealing with these things is, you know, could be related to his loyalty to some of these people.
2: You know, the the point is that you, you, you have to, uh, as a researcher, you have to tell the truth. If I, and I took on my own military intelligence. They they confessed, I exposed everything, and my parents didn't like the idea of me doing that. They were worried about it, but I said, I can't, you know, I have to tell what I know, all those documents, and then I went and interviewed everybody, and this story was the same. So if I'm going to rat out uh, military intelligence and all that, I'm certainly going to, uh, I'm not scared about Taylor, you know. I didn't get it at first, and bad on me, but, you know, it was, the whole thing was (laughs) decades of deception and so on, but the investigation goes on. It will be going on longer. All of us are on the ground.
0: Right. Yeah. When I spoke to, to Peter in a previous episode, he said that he thought that if if you were trying to nail down the bureaucratic, you know, entity or, or general neighborhood of where the assassination may have uh, originated, he said it, it, it's quite pop, quite likely in his mind that it came from the, the military side rather than the central intelligence agency. Um, I think it was, I, I, I think that may be true because of the continuity of government, like doomsday network resources that may have been brought to bear on the whole thing up. Uh, but that's more of a, that's something that I kind of um, inferred in different ways, but um, it seems that it was overdetermined and that the military at that point, when you look at the other things that they were doing with the, I mean, that, that professor Galbraith has written about with the, the nuclear plan, it was a real um, sort of Hobbesian insanity that prevailed in, in the mindset of these, of these people. I mean, to the point that Kennedy tried to arrange for that film to be made seven days in May, which if it really did come out of the military, then that's a movie where he's trying to make a he's trying to get a film made about his assassination or about a coup, you know. That, and the movie can't even get put out in time to prevent the assassination or or to or impact it. And then the film gets released and people don't make the connection.
2: Yeah, well, it explains why Kennedy was so scared of Lemitzer. You know, he treated him with kid gloves. He knew how bad he was. He knew how terrible the consequences were going to be for the planet if those guys had gotten what they wanted. And so you can see them struggling with uh, how to handle this hot potato. And it got hotter and hotter and hotter in the summer of 62, as you
3: know. Let me just say a few words about that, obviously. You've mentioned a couple of times my, my, my work on this issue, which also grew out of the very same class that I was teaching in the fall of 1993. One of my students, a young woman named Heather Purcell, uh, did a little project in the Johnson Library and came across a doc, document in the, that it. Been freshly declassified in the vice presidential security file, which had been compiled by Johnson's security aide, Howard Burris. And this described uh, a meeting uh, of the National Security Council on, I think, the, uh, the 20th of July, 1961, uh, and uh, uh, which. Uh, was uh, d- d- describing the, the report of a, something called the Net Evaluation Subcommittee. Uh, and the, the, the document, is the wording is slightly oblique, but when you read it, you realize this is not about the prospects of a Soviet attack on the United States. It's about the prospects of a U.S. attack on the Soviet Union uh, and what would happen and when it could be done and when it could be achieved in a way that would... the surprise counterforce strike. Exactly, uh, and the uh, you know, the they, they, the chairman of the JCS was Limnitzer at the time. Says so this is, could be done at the end of 1963. Couldn't be done before essentially because there weren't enough missiles, uh, and you had to have you couldn't do this with bombers because they're detected on radar, and you don't you don't have time to get them to their targets. But missiles all come out of the sky at once. So this was the background uh, in some sense, uh, and the the the, th- the thing was so, uh, you know. Uh, really strange shocking in many ways so we decided we'd do a paper on it which again followed the same protocol uh simply picking out whatever memoir and other historical literature and seeing if anybody had written about it and to my astonishment everybody had rusk had Sorensen had schlesinger had they all said something and oblique about this meeting um and uh and, uh they uh so we put all that together into in a in a, an article that the american prospect published in in 1994 uh they uh i have to tell a little story so i i had a, a very uh close and cordial relationship here for over many years with walt rostow uh and when i was ready with this article i called walt up and said i need to take you to lunch uh and um you know he uh we went and sat and had iced tea and uh, fried oysters, I think, in a little place on on Town Lake in Austin. And I said, well, I'm working on a paper about a meeting of the National Security Council that took place on the 20th of July, 1961. Oh, he said, you mean the one where they wanted to blow up the world? I said thank you all. That was basically all I needed to know. Uh, they, uh, yeah, but and then they described what uh, the, the the meeting, which we didn't use any interview material in the article, but getting confirmation uh, of that at that level, that we are, our instincts was right was 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 certainly a uh, you know,
2: uh, a- yeah, and like a two second response, like he he was emblazoned in his brain.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, he said he said yeah. Well, he was there at least up for part of the meeting, uh, that uh, and that he heard afterwards that Kennedy had chewed the generals out. Now, and Kennedy's reaction to this was obviously revulsion, uh, and that shows up in in many of the of the oblique comments that are met, that you can identify with this meeting uh, in the other memoir literature. After he walked out, and so we call ourselves the human race. Um, but it, there was an interesting sequel to this uh, in um, I think it's two thousand three. There was a history. Historical conference on Musgrove Island with uh, quite a lot of the Vietnam historians present. Uh, and uh, Bill Moyers was there. And uh, I, I uh, said something about this particular episode. And, and Bill said, you know, on the plane back from Dallas, I went up to Johnson and said he was looking out the window. Uh, I said, what, what, Mr. President, what's on your mind? And he said, I wonder if the missiles are flying. Uh, so it, 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 it's clear that I mean, this memorandum and the general state of the of, of situation in which it was known to people who were at that level that the U.S. had the capacity, the Soviets did not have the counter capacity at that time, uh, led to an extremely unstable situation. Uh, Moyers didn't realize that Johnson was referring to American missiles. Uh, but, of course, it was obvious he couldn't have been referring to anything else uh, mm-hmm and uh, it just tells you that that at and it's in fact the reference to this is in actually the first pages of Johnson's memoir if you read it carefully his uh this is uh, that that at some level there are uh, you know deeper and darker and more deadly issues even than the ones that actually emerged uh, that uh, that uh, LBJ had to deal with at the, at the start of, and throughout his presidency Right.
0: And that's ends up being a big part of the assassination cover up that somehow they had um, manufactured or, or uh, some kind of link between the KGB and uh, Oswald's visit to Mexico City. And so they were able to use those things to threaten uh, or in, in more or less um, people like uh, Senator Russell and Earl Warren to, to join the the. Commission.
3: Well, I mean, they're, they're, uh, given given the imbalance of power, which was obvious from the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the, the Soviets were, of course, very alarmed, uh, and they put their forces on alert uh, when they got the news, and uh, because they and they 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 uh, had uh, you know a reasonable fear that something like this might be coming down the pike. So uh, your uh, these these issues were not were not confected. They, the, the, the nuclear situation at the time was extremely unstable, uh, and getting control of it was uh, you know a priority that uh, could not be neglected.
0: Right, and there's more. Uh, there, there are other sto- stories that dovetail or complement this, both the nuclear angle and the degree of deception in the Defense Department in um, in Daniel Ellsberg's. Uh, memoir, The Doomsday Machine, he describes how he had to violate protocol to actually inform the president or the president's staff, it was McGeorge Bundy, about how the standard nuclear response for a general war meant that anything above a skirmish with the Soviet Union would would lead to general war, at which point you would just nuke the Soviet Union. And... You know, as a matter, of course, you would also nuke China because just because they were communists too, and, and that the president didn't even know that. Yeah, well,
3: that came up that came up in a later NSC meeting in which uh, Kennedy uh, asked uh, the uh, uh, Joint Chiefs why China was in the and in, uh, in, on the target list was they were at that time, 63. They hadn't detonated a bomb. Uh, and, uh, and and the answer came back because it's in the plan. That was signature. Which? He said, Lemitzer, "I, I the last time I looked at Chinese,
2: we were not thinking about attacking us. <laughs> yeah. And so that was pretty, you know, a backslap from Lemitzer. It's in the plan. That's not <laughs> – that's typical. Lemons was always treating Kennedy like a kid.
0: Right. You know? The strange love. That's – I mean, that the thing that I always – think about when in these discussions is how ellsberg walked out of dr strangelove and said that's a dot this movie is a documentary (laughs) you couldn't make this stuff up um and then you can't get rid of somebody this comes up again with these different characters as you say he sent him uh kennedy tries thinks he's getting rid of limnitzer and he sends him to to, uh over to europe but gladio is run out of brussels uh, as i understand it or, or they send uh, Bill Harvey, they want to get rid of him, but they send him to to Italy, to Italy, which is a hotbed of like Gladio, you know, propaganda due, all sorts of very sinister things. And then Nixon has a similar experience with Helms, where he sends him to Iran, and he's and, and then uh, Helms is able to perpetrate all sorts of mischief there with other intelligence agencies in the 70s. I mean, it's like you, I don't, I wonder why they can't just fire these guys and send them off to pasture, but I guess it's not that easy. Um Because they have a political cachet. You know
2: who's in charge of that whole secret, secret part of NATO? The SAC And who's that? The guy Kennedy sent there. Lemitzer. And the guy that he sent there because
0: he was kind of a deranged right, you know, uh, right-wing militarist.
2: Kennedy did not know about uh, that. He did not know what it was sending Lemitzer to. But Lemitzer knew because Lemitzer was the guy back in 48 and 49 who was supplying all the weapons for the caches He stay behind nets, originally for a Soviet invasion. But once that didn't happen, they weren't going to do that anyway. They were became part of the caches used for gladio operations. When the United States and Britain intervened in all of the political uh, uh, aspects of the West European nations, killed people, blew stuff up, and said the communists or the socialists did it to manipulate the, the elections. We did that all over Europe for 40 years. And so I teach a course in, called International Terrorism. And for the first time this semester, it was in my first lecture. I asked the class, who do you think has got the worst record of international terrorism in the 20th and 21st centuries? And they gave me a blank stare. Not they said us in the British. We suck.
3: There were a number of, of issues here, and there, the, the the political control of Western Europe was one. A second one uh, was the question of the recognition and acceptance of the independent role of the emerging states in Africa and across Asia, uh, and Indonesia as well, and so, uh, uh, where, where where the attitude of Kennedy's generation was fundamentally different uh, from uh, that of the. Uh, uh, of the Europe-oriented generals and uh, of of the fifties, Kennedy in fifty-seven had had declared himself on the side of Algerian independence, for example, and and sent serious people as to represent him in Africa and brought uh, the, the new leaders of Africa to Washington. Uh, this was the second thing, and the third thing was whether there was really going to be a a, a policy of détente and coexistence with the Soviet Union, uh, which uh, was uh, very much much the orientation that 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 Kennedy himself had, uh, uh, as against a you know the long term view of of, of, of the uh, of the establishment that the that was essentially one of uh, 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 that went back to the to the Russian Revolution, it was, it was, it was determined as, as far as possible to uh, to um, to undo it. Um, and uh, so th- these things were all th- these were there. the tensions in, inside the U.S. Uh, government that uh, emerged in the 1960s with the with the arrival and at the White House of, of, of some fresh thinking about how the world should be run uh, were, were were enormous.
2: And then after Kennedy died, it was back to business as usual, and it really pissed off the French. Uh, and so they moved NATO they got rid of NATO and and did have a detente with the russians and it didn't end up to losing anything in europe because the russians knew that they couldn't they couldn't take over europe they, they'd already had a huge amount of territory as it was
3: now johnson was boxed in the next major effort was kissinger and nixon in china in 1971 72 and then and, and then after that, um, you know, Reagan and Gorbachev. But uh, these things came around periodically, irrespective of party in the United States. Uh, and uh, but it took you we know, have twenty five more years before uh, the Cold War could be brought to an end from what might have happened in the early nineteen sixties.
0: Yeah, the the forces that were that they were up against. And I think it's. I wouldn't think that you all would just that either of you would confine it purely to the military bureaucracy, but um, you know, another angle of this is I think, I think relevant to some of Peter's work. And he has, he had an experience like with a book, uh, Professor Newman, that's very strange like yours. There's a book that was written in 19, uh, maybe 73 or something like that. It was edited by Mark Selden. It's an anthology and, and uh, Peter Dale Scott has an essay in that on, A schism uh, between the U.S. establishment over Vietnam and the U.S. monetary system, and that eventually some of these forces come to uh, mount opposition to continuing the Vietnam War because it's threatening the U.S. position, uh, the position of the dollar internationally. And so there's Mm -hmm. a contingency there. But what's very, what's fascinating about this article, the the whole article is relevant today, and like some of Peter's work, it strangely holds up and is and offers insights even though so much stuff has come out since then. But there's a a part that was cut out by the publisher, apparently, where it, it was a sentence that points out that the Federal Reserve in 1964, there had been a struggle over whether they should have these controls to try to bring the the balance of payments position back into some sort of equilibrium, or if they should take steps to sort of let it, let it fly. And that the Federal Reserve in 1964 Took steps to allow uh, for these measure me- these um, measures to control the balance of payments deficits from expanding. He allows these to expire more or less, and this is something that paves the way for the huge spending in Vietnam. And so, these act in, in '64. You have the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, but the war hasn't started yet. But the Federal Reserve is acting in ways to enable the explosion of spending more easily with the monetary system, and which is interesting enough. But then the fact that that's, that part was taken out of Peter's book, it just disappeared from the actual manuscript was, to me, pretty amazing.
2: Yeah, this was the same time that LBJ was asking to lower the draft age, too. In
0: 64. Right. So there's that quote in the Carno, Carnow, Stanley Carnow.
2: Yeah, you know, they need more soldiers, they need more troops.
3: Well, and and to, you know, clarify some of this question, I'm not sure I can speak to the 64 episode that you're speaking of, but, uh, at the time, the U.S. was obliged, under the Bretton Woods Agreement, to settle up balance of payments deficits, essentially, uh, at, at on request from central banks by selling gold that was in the U.S. stockpile at a fixed price, price that had been set by Roosevelt uh, in the 30s at $35 an ounce. Uh, and, uh, of course, were, the, the amount of gold that was available was large, but it was not infinite. Uh, and uh, so that uh, it was possible... Uh, for among others, the French and later the British government of Harold Wilson uh, to bring pressure on the U.S. by asking for redemptions of uh, dollars that they had accumulated uh, to uh, to gold. Uh, now uh, again, I don't know what exactly happened or may have happened in '64, but by 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 '68 '69. Johnson and I spoke to his deputy national security advisor at the time, Francis Bator, about this. Who was responsible for European relations? Johnson was very clear that uh, uh, that 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 the system was not sustainable. Uh, it lasted until August 15, nineteen seventy-one, as it happened when Nixon closed the gold window. Uh, but they, uh, but the great society, the strong economy, and the Vietnam War uh, meant that they that U.S. dollars were flowing out of the country because imports. were... We're going to exceed exports, essentially, indefinitely. Uh, It's a very curious fact that since the late 1970s, early 1980s, the world has been apparently quite content just to accumulate dollars without having anything backing them up. Uh, And this has been the basis of the U.S. standard of living uh, for the last 40 years.
0: Right, I go into I go into some detail on that in my dissertation. is one of the pivotal things that you have to understand to understand the U.S. you know U.S. hegemony and U.S. empires. That Vietnam, on the surface, seems as a major defeat for the United States, but in reality, the with the control over the monetary system and the, the fact that they were able to replace gold with Treasury bills means that the the U.S. becomes Rumpelstiltskin in a sense, and we can fund these deficits people just instead of taking their extra dollars and buying, you know, redeeming them for gold, they buy treasury bills. And so um, it's, it's amazing to think about that. When you think about these questions we get posed all the time, well, how are you going to pay for that? How are you going to do this? You know, how are you going to do that? When in fact, the policymakers know that they understand this. I mean, when Dick Cheney says deficits don't matter, that's what he's referring to. And yet, yeah, well, there, was
3: a, there was a comment attributed possibly apocryphally to the Iron Chancellor Otto von Bismarck sometime late in his life, and said to have said that the Almighty Providence takes special care of drunks, fools in the United States of America. Uh, and one, uh, you know, that, 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 that one can't bet against that proposition, although it is possible that the Almighty Providence might someday change his mind.
0: Uh, that happens with every empire, eventually. That concludes the first half of JFK in Vietnam on American Exception. The second half is coming soon. I want to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering this episode, Casey Moore for his awesome artwork, and Mock Orange for providing our music paraphrase Peter Dale Scott's poetry, let us keep minding the darkness.